scripture reading this morning will come from Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. Matthew 8, 5 through 13. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, which soldiers under me. And I say so, one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Just a couple of things. Just how much work. Starting over. I moved the switch. It must have been on from Bible class. As we begin this morning, I want to give honor where honor is due and, and, and recognize just how much work and effort has been put into Vacation Bible School as it begins tomorrow night. Especially giving honor and recognition to our one Michael Poole, the, the deacon over that work and how much effort he has put into it. We're thankful for all that he has done. And I want you to make sure that you give him a pat on the back and tell him thank you for that. Vacation Bible School is not just for our young people, though that is the primary uh, intent, I would imagine. But... Each evening, there are adult lessons that will take place here in the auditorium, and so we would encourage you to be here, to learn, to listen from uh, several individuals as they have prepared lessons this week. And so Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night, Wednesday night will uh, be a little bit different as we won't have a Bible class initially in here. We'll start over there in the OFC, and then the adult class, the adults will eventually move to over here into the auditorium. Secondly, I want you to remember and put, make sure it's on your calendar, a week from Tuesday, that is July 4th, we are having our summer family fun night. And we haven't said just a terrible amount about that as of yet because, well, we have VBS coming up and we didn't want to uh, take away too much of our volunteer work and, and uh, overwhelm our minds with all that's going on with VBS and, and such. But in the foyer, as you leave today, we need to know if you're coming 
okay? Because the hamburgers and hot dogs will be provided. And so all we're asking you to bring is just a, a side of some sort. And yes, the easy thing would be to grab a bag of chips. And if that's all you can bring, that's great. That's fine. But also maybe think about some variety of sides and options. I know uh, Mike Sadler said he's going to uh, cook a good pot of cowboy beans. And so if you've had his cowboy beans, you'll want to be there. They're, they're awesome. Um, but a side and a 4th of July themed dessert, that's all you need to bring. I recognize it is summer and it's going to be hot. It's already hot. And the idea is everything's gonna take place on the east side of our education building, outside in the shade. Hopefully as the sun goes down over here, we'll be shaded over there, but don't let that prevent you from coming if you think it's just still gonna be too hot. Obviously the OFC will still be open. Lots of activities, lots of fun. We'll have games, dominoes, cars, and things like that inside. If you want to just spend time fellowshipping, that's great as well. We'll also have some competitions and some activities for the kids outside, some involving even water. And so try to keep you cool and uh, maybe even some co competitive things for those of us that are middle-aged men and like to compete still. And so... Uh, if that, if that uh, excites you, be there. We look forward. There are sign-up sheets, as we said. We need to know if you're coming today. So sign up in the foyer as you leave. And also there are uh, things you can volunteer to bring and provide for that. And so please be sure to look at both of those sign-up sheets. Our lesson this morning, as you see on the screen, as we continue our series, Wonderful Words of Life, is the idea of the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture. Now, not really anyone, no one really likes the idea or the concept or anyone having authority over them. And it's not that we necessarily have anything against Tyler or Trent or Sean or Jaime or Logan in the fact that they have some sort of authority or jurisdiction over us as police officers. In fact, we appreciate them. But if we're really honest with ourselves, nobody really likes being told what to do. In fact, we don't like when our HOA tells us we can't paint our house a certain color. We don't like when the county tells us we have to pay taxes based upon the newly appraised value of our house. We don't like that people have authority over us and it's, it's just something we don't really like. And so we don't like authority from that perspective. But we also don't like authority because as we talk about this morning, the concept of authority might just be perceived to be kind of an academic exercise. Authority can maybe seem a little bit dry. It's something that's, that's a concept, but how does it really apply to me? And so this morning as we go through these things, maybe you'll start to think, man, this is kind of an academic exercise. It's kind of dry. And I'm going to do my best to be excited about authority, right? But I will submit to you this morning that though it may seem academic, though it may seem dry, we cannot afford to get the concept and the idea of authority wrong because it is foundational. It is a primary, a primary concern for us. And if we get it wrong, it has eternal consequences. And so let's begin our understanding and study of the concept of authority in scripture. We began with our scripture reading in Matthew chapter number eight. And we talked about the fact that in that scripture reading, we read from it a moment ago, that the, the centurion recognized that Jesus had some sort of authority. 
And that he said, I am a man of authority myself. I say to one, go and he goes, or to another, do this and he does that. And he says to Jesus, if you'll just but say or speak the words that my servant would be healed, that that would take place. And so consider as we think about Matthew chapter 8 and verses 5 through 13, what the idea of authority really is. What is the meaning of authority? What, what is the definition of it? And so let's define it. Simply authority is the right to command or expect. The right to command or expect. And so as we think about authority, we see here in this case, the centurion had the right to command or expect his servants to do a certain thing. In the case of Jesus, he also had the right to command or expect. And as the centurion recognized, even the right to command or expect that the centurion's servant would be healed, that the sickness would even obey what he had to say. Implied within that, implied within the idea of authority, is that there is expected submission by the one being commanded. The centurion says, go, and the one, if he is submitting to the authority of the centurion, would go. He would do what the centurion said. And so, as we think about authority this morning, it is a very important topic for us as we consider the authority of Scripture, because there is within that implied and expected submission by you and me. Some other words as you think about the idea of authority are the words jurisdiction. The same Greek word that is translated authority in Matthew chapter number eight is the same word that is found in Luke chapter 23 when Pilate has Jesus come before him or he's Jesus brought before him and he recognizes or knows or, or is made aware of the fact that he is under Herod's jurisdiction. Herod's jurisdiction, in other words, his authority, his realm. We understand the concept of a jurisdiction as we alluded to our police officers earlier this morning. The idea that they have jurisdiction over a certain area. And all of those men that we mentioned work in a lot of different areas, some in different counties, some in different, uh, even, I guess, precincts within certain counties. And so there's different jurisdiction that takes place. But even beyond that, in John chapter number one, that same word, the Greek word for authority as we find in Matthew chapter 8 is also translated sometimes as ability or right or power. In John chapter 1 and verse number 12, speaking of Jesus, when we believe in his name, we are given the right to become children of God. The right, that is the capability, or we are authorized, as we'll talk about here in just a little bit, to be called or to become children of God. But as we think about this concept of authority, I want us to kind of take it from a different angle, a different approach this morning, and think about first and foremost, the authority that Jesus possessed in scripture, that we see him having. We've already mentioned in Matthew chapter number eight, his authority over sickness, and we'll mention that again here in just a second. But notice Jesus's authority in scripture. He spoke with authority in Matthew chapter number seven. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they were astonished at his teachings because he spoke as one who had authority and not as the scribes and Pharisees. We also mentioned a second ago, Matthew chapter number eight, but also now consider Matthew chapter number nine and verse number six. But that you may know that the son of man has power, not just power in the sense of strength or capability, but also an authority that is the right to command or expect on earth the forgiveness of sins. That is, Jesus has the authority to say, your sins are forgiven. 
Not just can he do it from a will perspective or a strength perspective, but even beyond that, that he has the right or the authority to say that. And also consider verse number eight in the account of this paralytic man who was healed. Verse number eight, the multitude saw it and they marveled and glorified God who had given such, as my translation puts it, power. Yes, again, power from an idea of ability, but even beyond that, authority over sickness to command or expect that sickness to come out. Turn the page and look at chapter number 10 of Matthew. He even had authority over demons. In this particular case, he called his 12 disciples to him and he gave them power or authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Of course, the authority here is their ability to receive that authority and then take it and go and do that. But that authority was given to them because Jesus possessed the authority to begin with. And we see that he had that ability in multiple other places throughout scripture as well. So he has authority in the words that he speaks, in his ability to forgive sins, in his authority over sickness, his authority over demons. Consider also his authority to cast into hell. In Luke chapter 12, in verse number five, we find that Jesus says, do not fear him who only has the ability or the power to kill the body. But he says, fear him who also, not only when he has the ability to kill the body, also has the authority when he's done, the authority, the power to, th- to cast him into hell. So Jesus has the authority to cast into hell. He also, look in John chapter 5. I want us all to see this particular text. John chapter number 5, beginning in verses uh, 26 and 27. John chapter 5, verse 26 and 27. Jesus has authority to execute judgment. To execute judgment. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the son of man. So his authority to cast into hell, and obviously connected to that is his ability or authority to judge who should be cast into hell. And then finally, especially, turn a few pages over to John chapter 10, as we're already there in John. John chapter 10 and verse number 18, amazingly, Jesus has not just authority over sickness and over sin and over demons, but over death. Over death. Notice John chapter 10 and verse number 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down, speaking of his life, of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have a power, that word again, translated also in other translations as authority, to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So Jesus has power, he has authority the right to command and expect with regard to sins, with regard to sickness, with regard to demons, who's in hell, who is judged, and how they're judged, and even over death. And so having considered all of these things, the question is this. Why would we ever think that Jesus doesn't also have authority over my life and the way that I live, what he commands and expects of me? In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, in the Great Commission, there is this beginning of this commission, a very important phrase. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Again, the word authority, the right to command or expect. Jesus says, I have authority to command you to observe certain things. All right, so having said all that, here's, here's the big question, right? All right? I thought we were talking about the authority of Scripture. That, that's what we're talking about our, in our theme, our, our series this, this month, right? The wonderful words of life. So what does Jesus' authority in Scripture have anything to do with that? I would submit to you this morning that Jesus' words have authority whether they are spoken or written. Whether they are spoken or written. Put yourself in the shoes of someone in the first century as you go back to the previous slide. And you see Jesus having authority over all of these things. Especially when he's raised from the dead having said, I have authority to bring my life back again. Having seen Jesus do all of these things, would you not throw yourself at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, I will do whatever you command or expect of me. Because you are that amazing, you're that powerful God, you're God in the flesh, Jesus. Whatever you say, I will do. You say jump, I will say how high. That's the idea of when Jesus had authority on earth, people would have responded to that authority, should have responded to that authority in that way. But then the question again is, well, what does this have to do with the words of Scripture? I want us to think about the fact that Jesus' scriptures are the authority. Jesus' scriptures are the authority. And we don't mean by that just the red letters. There are some in the religious world that ascribe to the idea that the only authoritative words, Jesus' words were only authoritative when we find them in our text in red letters, as though Jesus were speaking those words and only those words. But here's the kicker. God speaks by his son, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. That is to say, in times past and in various ways, God spoke to the, to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us by his son, having appointed him, notice, having appointed him heir over all things, having created the world or created all things by him. Now, as you notice that last phrase, having appointed him heir over all things, what's the idea or concept there? If Jesus is appointed heir, the idea or the implication is Jesus is given authority. He's given the right to command or expect. Being the heir, just like an heir having inherited some estate, has the right to command or expect what is done with that estate. But beyond that, Jesus said that he would send the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't what Jesus only said here on earth, but in John chapter 16, verses 4 through 15, Jesus said, there are things that you need to know, but you're not ready to bear them yet. And so he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit or the Comforter to guide you into all truth. To guide you into all truth. So again, the implication is this, that Jesus' words weren't done yet. When he was on earth, he had things to say to them and they were authoritative and they're still authoritative today. But when he sent the Holy Spirit to guide men as they wrote down things that they were inspired by or inspired with by the Holy Spirit, they were authoritative as well. And so 2 Peter 1 verses 20 and 21 tells us that no scripture is of any private interpretation. 
But holy men of God spoke as they were moved about or carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is to say, these things were not of their own accord, of their own volition. They didn't just come up with them on their own. But holy men of God spoke and wrote as they were carried along. So in summation, all scripture is inspired by God. Inspired even, as you might think about it, by Jesus, as he's the one that sent the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, is, it is as if God breathed out these words, as if he spoke them. So going back to what we said a moment ago, Jesus' words are authoritative whether they are spoken from the physical flesh body of Jesus or whether they are written because scriptures are as if God breathed them out. So Jesus' scriptures are the authority. The implication, number one, is this. Ignoring or removing words of scripture is to deny and to attempt to strip away the authority of Jesus. But not only that, adding to or changing words of scripture is to strip Jesus of authority and to give it to someone else. So why is authority so important? Why is there such an emphasis placed on a, in our preaching, in our Bible classes, on the idea and concept of authority? It's because Jesus' words are all authority and all authoritative, and that when we have them, whether spoken or written, but delivered by the Holy Spirit through the pen of apostles and other men, they have authority just the same. And so just as we would have if we would have seen Jesus healing the sick or raising from the dead, thrown ourselves at his feet and said, Jesus, tell me whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. So should we also throw ourselves down at the words of scripture and say, God, Jesus, whatever you say, through the words of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, whatever you say, I will throw myself down at it and I will do it because it has the right to command or expect that of me. Scripture has all authority because, number one, as we've already alluded to, it is God's word, period, dot. We shouldn't have to explain any more than that. God is our creator, and all things that are created are subject to their creator. They are subject or they ought to be submissive to. They are to be expected of by their creator. And so if God says something, we ought to do it, period, dot. We could end there, but let's continue. It is sufficient, John 20, verses 30 and 31, and also 1 John 5, verse 13, for us to know what we need to know to believe in Jesus. We don't need anything else beyond it. It's authoritative in that sense. And it's sufficient for us to know that we have salvation. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith doesn't come by some little nudge in your heart as some people teach that the spirit somehow just moves you to faith, but rather that when we read Jesus's authoritative words and the other words that he sent by the Holy Spirit, that those are what produce faith. 2 Timothy chapter three, verses 14 and 15, before verse 16, as we have alluded to there on the screen, Paul tells Timothy to remember the words that he had been taught from his youth because they were able to make him wise unto salvation. The idea is that scripture is the only place that we can find authority for the idea or concept or the commands about where salvation comes from and that's where we ought to turn, nowhere else. It is also inerrant. It is inerrant 
it means that it is perfect. And when it is perfect, and when you think about it being perfect, it carries with it all authority. It, every word of God is pure. Proverbs chapter 30, verse number five. Also Psalm chapter 12 and verse number six tells us every word of God is pure. It is like it has been refined in fire, purified seven times. It is that perfect. Is that authoritative? It is holistic. Second Peter chapter three, Second Peter chapter one, verse number three. God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, whatever scripture says on any matter, it is the authority. You know, sometimes, as we said, we like to buck authority. We don't like authority. We don't like having authority, you know, held over our heads. And so sometimes we just want to do what we want to do. And so when it comes to how we organize the church, or whether it comes to how we teach or what we teach about salvation, or whether it comes to things about how we live, maybe even about marriage and divorce and remarriage, we just want to do what we want to do because I like and I'm, I, I'm, I feel better about this situation when I'm in this relationship. But the words of God are holistic. They carry with them authority in every avenue and realm of our life. And ultimately, it's authoritative because it is settled. It is not a fluid document. Sometimes there is this idea that our Constitution is a fluid document, that it changes depending upon the times, and it moves around, and the meaning of certain amendments and words change. And that's a debate for another time. But the Word of God is not a fluid document. It is settled. Some have pointed out that in Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, at the beginning of your Bible, in the middle of your Bible in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, and at the end of your Bible in Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 through 19, are three different occasions in which it is said to not add to or take away from the Word of God. The beginning, the middle, the end. We might even throw in there Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, in which Paul says, though we or an angel from heaven deliver any other gospel to you except that which you receive from us, let him be accursed. The implication is there is nothing that is needed beyond Scripture. It is all authoritative, has everything we need. It is settled. So let's get practical in the remaining moments of our lesson this morning. A lot of academic stuff, as we've we've talked about up to this point. Why is it so important to appeal to scriptural authority in your own life? Number one, it's the nature of deity. That's what Jesus was like. Some came to him and and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? And he turned it back on them. I won't tell you by what authority I do them uh, until you answer this question. And he says, by what authority did John's baptism come or who did it come from? And the, the point was it came by God. It came by the authority of God and he appealed to it. And so if we're going to be like God, like we're striving to be, we need to appeal to it as well. But not only that, it brings clarity It brings clarity. In Judges chapter 17, verse number six, scripture tells us there was no king in Israel in those days and every man did which was right in their own eyes. You wanna talk about the problem in the world that we have today is because anarchy exists whenever there's no moral authority. We use that phrase, moral authority, right? Who is our moral authority? What's your moral authority? Scripture is our moral authority. (coughs) It is the only place by which we should be deriving that which commands or expects things of us. It is all authoritative. It brings clarity. And if we but all come together and come let us reason together, says the Lord, if we come together and reason over the scriptures, we will have clarity. There will no longer be anarchy if we'll just but follow it. And so 
is practical for us in the world and how we're treating one another and how the world gets along, but it's also practical for us within the church. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 10. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 and verse number 10. You want to talk about why authority is so practical? You ask the question, first and foremost, why is the world at odds with each other so much? It's because there's no moral authority. Why is Christendom at odds with each other so much? Why is there so much division? Why, when you drove here this morning to this building, did you pass about 20 different denominations? Why is that? Because people are not appealing to the moral, not, not just the moral authority, but the doctrinal authority of the scriptures. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number one. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same things and that there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Well, how do we speak the same things, you might ask? Do we get together and do we just vote on what we think is best? Well, you know where that's led? To even more and more splits and more and more divisions. Even just in a local assembly here within Katy, within the last couple of months, there has been division over a certain matter that you're well aware of that our world is very infatuated with right now. If people would just speak the same things, speak where the Bible speaks, unity would be promoted. Authority founded upon the word of God is the solution for division with denominationalism. God's word is all authoritative, not just in the world at large, how we treat one another, but how the church ought to be unified. But also it's a mark of maturity. So we've moved from the world at large to Christendom and the church in general, but now to me as an individual. Why is authority so important? Why is this practical for me? Because if I appeal to authority, it is a mark of maturity. Mark chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus said, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. What does that have to do with authority? As we said at the beginning of our sermon, no one likes authority because no one likes to be told what to do because authority means submission. We don't like to appeal to the authority of scripture sometimes as individuals because we don't like to do what God's word says. We just want to do what we want to do. But Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to throw yourself at my feet and say, Jesus, tell me whatever to do, it means that I need to deny myself. It means that I need to put myself away to die to self. That's what we're doing in the water grave of baptism. We're dying to self and rising up a new creature saying, Jesus, you are my authority. It's that practical. It's that important. It also ensures eternal security. It ensures eternal security. John 8, verse 51. If you keep my words, Jesus says, if you keep my words, you will never taste death. That is, if you submit to my authority, what I have said, you will never taste death. Why is it so important to appeal to scriptural authority? Because it has eternal consequences. So how does the principle of authority impact me in my life? I need to ask the question, is there any word from the Lord? Jeremiah 37 verse 17. And when it comes to how I might feel or what other people might feel, I need to put those things away and say, is there any word from the Lord? And I need to ask the question, Based upon the authority of scripture, am I authorized to engage in this particular endeavor? 
Not just is it wrong for me to do this thing, but is it right for me? Has Jesus given me authority? Has he commanded or expected this of me? Now, there is so much more we could say about this topic, but we'll leave that for a few weeks when we're going to talk about the silence of Scripture. What do I do about Scripture and its authority when it doesn't say something about a particular matter? And so we'll leave that for another week. But know that I need to always ask the question, am I authorized to engage in a particular matter? It's always been this way, guys, right? So we look through Scripture. Adam and Eve, our first example. God always expects his people to live in a particular way. God did not give Adam and Eve authority to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He only authorized them to eat, really, of everything else, but not of that tree. Authority was from the very beginning. The principle existed there even. Think about Noah and the ark. God has always expected his people to follow specific directions for salvation. If Noah wanted to get salvation from the flood, he had to do what God said. And God said, build an ark. And he did it exactly as he expected. And God gave Noah authority to build the ark, but only to build it in a very particular way, with a particular material, a particular shape and and dimensions. He couldn't choose to do it a different way. He wasn't authorized to do that. Authority matters. A third example, Nadab and Abihu. God has always expected his people to follow a specific pattern for worship. For worship. Things haven't changed. We say, well, what's the big deal? Why are we talking about instrumental music? Why are we talking about whether or not we should have praise teams or whatever it may be? The question is always, where is our authority? God has always expected his people to follow a specific pattern for worship. Not what does it not say, but what does it say? God did not give authority to Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10 to offer the type of fire that they offer. We say, well, they offered something. They were worshiping God. That wasn't sufficient. God authorized them to worship and, and, and sacrifice a particular type of fire to him or to offer it to him in a particular way. God's always worked this way. And finally, the Levitical priesthood. God has always expected his people to follow a pattern for the organization of his institutions. He did not authorize any other tribe other than the tribe of Levi to possess or to have priests within it. Authority matters. It's always been this way. And so the question as we close this morning is, how do you respond to Scripture's authority? How do you respond to Scripture's authority? Do you respond to it fully like Noah did in Genesis chapter 6 and 7? Four times it said that Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Four times. Obviously it's important. Obviously it matters. Or do you do it partially? We alluded to Nadab and Abihu a moment ago. They worshiped God, at least they tried to, but they didn't do it fully the way that God told them to. They offered fire, but as it says in the ESV in that verse, they, authorized, they, they offered unauthorized fire. That's the, that's the word that was chosen to be translated, unauthorized fire. Sometimes strange or profane. This one in the ESV, unauthorized. As God had not authorized the fire they'd offered. This one's interesting to think about. Are you submitting to God's authority, but doing it presumptively? You're not really doing it at all. When you're, you're not submitting to it at all when you're doing it presumptively. But are you thinking you're submitting it to him by doing it presumptively? Think about this. 
In Exodus chapter 17, verse number six, you remember Moses leading the children of Israel through the wilderness? He says to Moses, you want water? Go strike that rock, and he does it, and water comes out of the rock. A little later on down the road, they need water again, and they're at the same rock. In Numbers chapter 20, verse number eight, God says to Moses, speak to the rock. Instead, this time, he strikes the rock. Water still comes out, but there's a consequence for Moses. He's not able to go into the promised land with the children of Israel. You say, well, well, God had told him at one point that it was okay to strike the rock. But God authorized very specifically. He didn't say, don't strike the rock. He just said, speak to the rock. Are you doing it presumptively? Are you following God's authority presumptively? Well, it was okay in the Old Testament. Well, God told someone else or so-and-so in the past that it was okay or that they should do that. That's presumptive of you. Has God authorized you now to worship or to act in this particular way? And finally, are you just doing it disobediently, completely disobediently with regard to the authority of God's word? In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 5 and 7, we have Uzzah touching the Ark of the Covenant as it began to fell off the cart. He struck dead. And you say, wow, what's the big deal about, I mean, he was just trying to do a good thing, trying to keep that ark from falling. If you go back and read Numbers chapter 4 and Numbers chapter 7, you find very clearly that God authorized only a specific group of people to have anything to do with carrying the ark of the covenant and that they were to do it with rods through certain rings held onto the ark, that they weren't to put it on a cart. It wasn't just that Uzzah touched the ark, but that he was disobeying the express commands of God and how the ark was to be transported. Authority matters. Wonderful words of life. Like we said at the beginning, it might be dry, might be academic to think about, but we cannot afford to get it wrong. Are you submitting to God's authority this morning? If you want to submit to him in baptism, we encourage you to do that. Or perhaps you're already a Christian and you've strayed away from submitting to God's authority. Make it right this morning. If there's anything we can help you with, come forward as we stand and as we sit.